Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Prepare to gag, yeah. Gays Against Guns is an inclusive direct action group of LGBT plus people and allies committed to nonviolently breaking the gun industry's chain of death. Investors, manufacturers, the NRA, and politicians who block safer gun laws. Greetings and welcome to Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Radio Gag is your update on how to end the horror that is the American gun violence epidemic. I am your host, Libby Edwards. And I'm Sarah Germain Lilly. Today we bring you United States versus Rahimi. The next Second Amendment case, the most conservative far-right court our country has had in almost a hundred years, challenges domestic protection orders, also known as restraining orders, and whether domestic abusers have a constitutional right to carry a gun. The Fifth Circuit of the Federal Court, which represents Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, has ruled in favor of Zaki Rahimi, a man subject to a restraining order because of his violence towards a former girlfriend, who is also the mother of his child, and his reckless use of a gun. Under the restraining order, Zaki Rahimi is not allowed to possess a firearm, but that has been reversed by the Fifth Circuit Court. Rahimi claims he has a Second Amendment right to possess a firearm according to the recent standards of gun regulation authored by Justice Clarence Thomas in New York versus Bruin. On our show, our in memoriam, Gabriela Gonzalez of Dallas, Texas. The GVP News Update with Ty Kersley. Our interview with Rachel Graber, Deputy Project Director for the Battered Women's Justice Project. And next, our In Memoriam. Thank you, Sylvan Robinson, for researching and curating our In Memoriam in our Human Beings Facebook page. In remembrance of Gabriela Gonzalez, 26 years old, May 10th, 2023, Dallas, Texas. My sister was very beautiful. She was so sweet, her sister Melanie Rubio said. It's heartbreaking because everybody loved her. Gabriela Gonzalez, mother of three, was with her ex-boyfriend in a Dallas parking lot when he tried to put her in a chokehold. According to police, a surveillance video from the parking lot shows that Gonzalez shrugged him off. As the two continued walking, he pulled out a gun and shot her in the head. Police said he shot her multiple times as she lay on the ground before running away. Gonzalez had just ended a tumultuous four-month relationship with the shooter when the murder occurred. Gabrielle had just returned from a trip to Colorado to get an abortion. The shooter was believed to be the father of the child. He was so angry that she wanted to get away from him, her sister said. She would always tell me that she wanted to leave, but she couldn't. Tragically, her sister witnessed the murder while she was driving nearby. I heard gunshots and immediately knew it was her. And when I looked back, it was her. She was on the floor. I was in shock. I couldn't touch her. I couldn't move. Body froze. A search of the shooter's criminal history 
shows prior charges of domestic assault, which resulted in a warrant being issued for his arrest prior to the shooting. Gonzalez's mother said the report was officially filed by her family in March, and even after multiple attempts to reach the Dallas police to urge an arrest, they never heard back. Gabriela Gonzalez, we remember you. I'm so sorry we lost Gabriela, 26 years old, and she courageously broke up with her boyfriend only to have him kill her. The vast majority of women who are killed in domestic violence are killed by guns, especially when they try to leave their abuser. Remember the national mental health hotline number is 988. Next up, Ty Kersley gives our gun violence prevention news. I'm Ty Kersley with the GVP News here on Radio Gag. We can effectively reduce gun violence in our country with more sensible federal laws in place. This is from The Trace by Chip Brownie. Biden's enhanced background checks appear to be working. It's a tragic reality. Many of America's mass shooters are young adults. According to the Violence Project, from 1966 to the present, the median age of perpetrators of shootings at K-12 schools is 18. And the New York Times reports that six of the country's nine deadliest mass shootings between 2018 and June 2022 were carried out by people younger than 21. Academics and law enforcement officials have largely attributed the trend to lenient state and federal regulations that allow 18-year-olds to purchase weapons. Indeed, federal age restrictions are relatively lax. Licensed firearm dealers can't sell handguns to those under 21, but for long guns, like rifles and shotguns, the age is 18, and those restrictions only apply to licensed dealers. Private sellers can sell handguns to those over 18 and long guns to teens under 18. It is for these reasons that many gun reform advocates have pushed for laws to address the intersection of age and gun violence. There have been some successful efforts in states like New York, which raised the age to own a semi-automatic firearm to 21, after the 2022 Buffalo supermarket and Uvalde mass shootings. On the federal level, a push last year to raise the age to 21 to purchase semi-automatic rifles failed, but lawmakers in Congress reached a compromise. They created an enhanced background check process for people under 21 who are looking to buy firearms from licensed dealers. The enhanced checks, which require the FBI to do a deeper inquiry than in standard background checks, began rolling out in some states in November 2022 and went nationwide in January. So far, the results look promising. New FBI data obtained by the trace shows that enhanced background checks have stopped hundreds of young adults who shouldn't have guns from buying them. Since the rollout began last year through July 11th, the FBI's National Instant Criminal Background Check System, or NICS, conducted 116,000 349 background checks on potential purchasers between 18 and 20 years old. Of those, 1,100 checks resulted in a denial. And according to the FBI, some 23% of those blocked purchases, or 253, wouldn't have been flagged under the old system. That might seem like a small number of denials, considering the magnitude of gun purchases in the United States, and that's fair. 
but that still hundreds of unlawful and potentially dangerous gun purchases that otherwise would have proceeded if this new process wasn't created. Think about it this way. If the enhanced checks hadn't been in place, nearly a quarter of denied purchases made by 18 to 20 year olds would have proceeded. And gun purchases aren't often denied. The overall NICS denial rate is around 1.5%, historically for all gun purchases, regardless of age. That said, the FBI didn't track denials by age before the enhanced checks went into effect, so it's difficult to say with certainty whether the total number of denials for those 18 to 20 increased because of the new system. An agency spokesperson said, Regardless, the enhanced system has garnered support from both Democratic and Republican politicians since it launched. It's focused on that age cohort that is disproportionately represented in some of the mass shootings that we've seen around the country, and it seems to be working, Senator John Corrin, a Republican from Texas, said during a Senate committee hearing in March. The rollout of the enhanced process has also received praise from President Joe Biden and Senator Chris Murphy, a Democrat from Connecticut. The enhanced background checks are no small lift for the FBI. While the standard NICS background check process involves running identifying information through a matrix of databases that contain criminal and mental health records, the enhanced process goes further, requiring NICS to directly contact state and local law enforcement as well as state and local courts. This proactive outreach aims to uncover potentially disqualifying records that may not have been added to the database used by NICS, including those held by state and local custodians of mental health records or juvenile courts, information that typically doesn't factor into the standard background check. In addition, the Safer Communities Act effectively created a waiting period for young people who wish to buy guns by giving the FBI's NICS division 10 days to finish the background check investigation. NICS has three days to begin its outreach, but if any questionable findings emerge, they have an additional seven days for further investigation before the sale can proceed. That's opposed to a three-day limit for a standard background check for someone 21 and over. Though most checks deliver a decision instantaneously, after which a sale can proceed, even if NICS hasn't delivered a decision. That extended time frame functionally means that no one under 21 can enter a licensed gun store and leave that same day with a firearm. Given that research has shown that waiting periods of even a few days may significantly reduce firearm homicide rates, that aspect of the enhanced checks alone could prevent some shootings. It is not a comprehensive solution, though. The enhanced checks aren't a stand-in for universal background checks. Young people in some states can still buy guns from private sellers without undergoing a check at all. And record-keeping practices for juvenile criminal and mental health records vary by state, even by county. A background check, no matter how detailed, isn't going to prevent all gun violence, but it's one tool to prevent gun violence from ending up in the hands of people who shouldn't have them. A recent report from EverytownResearch.org states, intimate partner violence and gun violence in the United States are inextricably linked, impacting millions of women, families, and communities across the country. 
Abusers with firearms are five times more likely to kill their female victims, and guns further exacerbate the power and control dynamic commonly used by abusers to inflict emotional abuse and exert coercive control over their victims. Every month, an average of 70 women are shot and killed by an intimate partner. Nearly 1 million women alive today report being shot or shot at by intimate partners, and over 4.4 million women have reported being threatened with a gun by an intimate partner. And beyond the daily toll of this problem, in more than half of mass shootings over the past decade, the perpetrator shot a current or former intimate partner or family member as part of the rampage. The ripple effects of firearms in the hands of an abuser extend far beyond the intimate relationship, affecting children who witness or live with it, and the family members, coworkers, and law enforcement officers who respond to it. While the deadly intersection of guns and intimate partner violence affects all women, it has a disproportionate impact on American Indian, Alaska Native, Black, and Latina women, as well as pregnant and postpartum women. In addition, segments of the LBGTQ community and people with disabilities are highly vulnerable to severe forms of relationship abuse. But there is alarmingly little data on the intersection of firearms and intimate partner violence among these populations because of underreporting of these incidents to authorities. Next up, we interview Rachel Graber of the Battered Women's Justice Project on United States versus Rahimi. A Supreme Court ruling this year on this case will determine whether domestic violence restraining orders violate the Second Amendment rights of domestic abusers. Okay, welcome everybody to our Radio Gag podcast. We're really excited to have Rachel Graber here today with us and also Libby Edwards, our Radio Gag producer. Rachel is the Deputy Project Director at the Battered Women's Justice Project. And I came to know her through the National Gun Violence Prevention Roundtable. And being on that listserv, Rachel's been sending out the best the best briefs and so shocking sometimes, particularly this one that is about the Supreme Court hearing a case on domestic violence and the plaintiff is Rahimi. So this is U.S. versus Rahimi. Rachel, welcome. Thank you for talking about this today. Thanks so much, Sarah and Libby. Thanks so much for inviting me. And I have to say, um, I was always a big fan of, of GAG and all of the wonderful work that you, you do with your human beings. Um, and you're just so amazingly creative. And it was always such a, you know, a breath of fresh air, something new and different that really got people energized. So thank you so much for all of your work. Sure. And thanks for being with us, Libby. It's always a pleasure and an inspiration. <laughs> Definitely. So, Rachel, could you please walk us through this case and explain it for our listeners? Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to just start with a little foundational um, background, if that works for you. Um, you know, one of the primary system based tools that we have for dealing with domestic violence is a civil domestic violence protective order. So, as you know, there are kind of two different um, Two, two, different, two, two, two different avenues within the um, legal system 
there's the criminal system, which is, you know, concerned with crimes and punishment. And then there's the civil system, which has a very you know, broad jurisdiction over a lot of different issues. And so domestic violence can fall within either of these two systems. Um, domestic violence is a crime. It is a crime in every state, every territory. Um, it is also a federal crime, interstate domestic violence. Um, but for many reasons, um, domestic violence is often handled in the civil context instead. And we can talk about why that is if you'd like. Um, but in general, a lot of survivors, you know, they don't want to engage the criminal system because it has such broader impacts on their lives as well as as the lives of their their intimate partners. Um, so, you know, one of the most popular remedies for victims and survivors who are experiencing intimate partner violence is to go to the civil court and to ask the civil court to issue a domestic violence protective order. Sometimes you might hear it called a restraining order. Um, and basically in that order, a court says to the respondent, you cannot abuse this person. You cannot stalk this person. You cannot harass this person. It can give all sorts of different kinds of relief. So it can say, um, you have to leave your shared home. Um, the, the victim ha ha has access to the home. Um, it can say things like you cannot, you know, take the victim off of your um, off of your health insurance. You cannot, you know, take money that belongs to the victim. One other thing that it can do um, is it can say you cannot have fire and you have to surrender, relinquish any firearms that are currently in your possession. In 1994, Congress passed the Violence Against Women Act was part of the uh, larger kind of omnibus crime bill. And in that bill, there was a provision, it's called, um, we call it the, the Domestic Violence Protective Order Prohibitor, or G8. To summarize that, if you are subject to a final protective order, and a final protective order is an order issued after hearing, at which both parties have the opportunity to go in front of a judge and share their evidence and refute each other's arguments, you know, just like, you know, you see on TV. After that, if a protective order is issued, and if it finds that there's a threat to the victim or their kid, um, or uh, prohibits the use or attempted use of physical force against the intimate partner or child, and if it says that um, the abuser cannot harass or stalk or threaten the intimate partner or engage in other conduct that would put them in fear of, of, of injury, um, then you can't have a gun under federalism. This only applies to current or former spouses, current or former cohabitants, or people who share a child in common. Does not apply to dating partners who don't cohabit and don't share a child in common. And then this prohibition only lasts as long as a protective order. So that just depends on the state. Some states, you know, a final protective order will last months. Some states, it's up to, you know, five years. Um, it just really depends on where you are. So that's kind of the background to what we're talking about. But basically, final protective order, federal law prohibits you from having a gun or ammunition. Mm -hmm. It would apply, however, if the uh, partners were, uh, met those criteria and they were same-sex partners, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Yes, it does apply to same-sex 
partners who are, again, married, formerly married, cohabit, formerly cohabit, or shared childhood. Okay. Regardless of the gender of, of any, any of the people involved. Because my understanding is that there is a domestic violence issue within the uh, within same-sex couples however it does not receive as much attention and is not as well known it's not as discussed i don't believe as uh, you know male female violence absolutely and so i'm gonna just straight out and say this isn't my area of expertise but um i can tell you first of all that um Bisexual women actually are, are at greatest risk of experiencing intimate partner violence of any any um, gender identity or sexual orientation, and then and, and transgender women as well. We also know that people who are not in, I guess, you know, heteronormative relationships face barriers to seeking services. The Violence Against Women Act prohibits VAWA-funded programs from denying services to people based on sexual orientation or gender identity, but we still know that you know a lot of mainstream programs are, are not equipped to deal with anybody who has you know more complicated relationships, right? You know, so for example, um, people who are in um, same-sex relationships, there are so many other forms of abuse that an abusive partner can use. For example, you know, threatening to out a survivor or um, saying that they are not, you know, sufficiently femme or sufficiently butch or, you know, talking about their presentation, you know, in, in a way that um, in a, you know, a heterosexual relationship, those, those, those things wouldn't come into play, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and we also know that courts, even though legally um, it doesn't matter, the, you know, the, the uh, gender of any of the parties, courts don't treat people equally or equitably, right? So it's often harder um, for um, same-sex or non-heteronormative um, survivors to access the, the justice system. And, you know, we also know that um, a lot of police, when they are responding to intimate partner um, situations, they, they're not, uh, they're again, trained in this kind of heteronormative paradigm and so when they're, and, 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 you know, part of that training includes how to identify who's the primary aggressor. Right. But a lot of that, again, kind of flies out the window when you have people of the same gender or the same sex and, um, you know, they, they don't have that, that training. So again, if not my area of expertise, um, but we know that, that, that people who are LGBTQ are disproportionately impacted and face additional barriers to seeking services and safety. Great. Thank you for addressing that. I think our listeners will benefit from that explanation. Absolutely. This is Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. You can hear us on any podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Subscribe and leave a message after you listen. After five years of podcasting, Radio Gag is developing and changing. Tell us what you love about Radio Gag or what really makes you gag about gun violence. And now we return to our interview with Rachel Graber, Deputy Project Director, 
for the Battered Women's Justice Project. Yes. Now, the more I hear about the details of this case and the real actors at play here, I'm really shocked that Rahimi in particular has, who is so clearly a bad actor, has become the test case for these domestic violence protection orders. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, for, you know, since, since 1994, um, this federal law has been um, on the books and has been um, successfully implemented across the country. Um, and we've seen a, a, a significant decrease in intimate partner homicide. Um, although in recent years that, that trend has reversed. Um, and um, so, you know, everything was, was kind of moving along. Um, and then uh, just, gosh, was it only last year? I think it was only last year. Um, the Supreme Court basically upended, you know, centuries of jurisprudence in the New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Um, and actually in the domestic violence field, we did submit an amicus brief in this case. And I was the one who coordinated that with, um, with the field, basically saying, Supreme Court, please just rule really narrowly on this case. So Bruin, it was about New York concealed carry permitting laws. And instead of just kind of addressing the permitting laws, the the Supreme Court basically said, we are going to throw out the way that people have, that the courts have been um, looking at cases regarding firearms since um, 2008. In 2022, the Supreme Court said, actually, you know what? We don't care if there is a compelling government interest. What we really care about is um, whether there was a historic tradition, whether this falls within the historic tradition of government regulation of, of the Second Amendment. They were very broad in their definition of that. Um, they didn't really set out a framework for courts to figure out kind of what constitutes history, how to, how to weigh history, right? Not all history is created equal. And they did not like, lay out a framework. And so since that time, it's kind of been a free-for-all. Um, different courts are looking at the same situations and coming to wildly drastically different. So that brings us to Zaki Rahimi. He was subject to a protective order. He agreed to a protective order actually after, after um, assaulting his ex-girlfriend um, with whom he had a child in common. So it, um, she was, she was the, the, the mother of, of his child and thus was covered under the federal firearms prohibitor. Um, while he was subject to this protective, protective order, he went on a shooting spree and shot up five different locations, um, including at a Whataburger because his um, friend's his friend's credit card had been declined. He shot at a deputy. He was in a car accident and shot at the person in the other car. He, I believe, shot into his drug dealer's home. So he is clearly not the kind of guy who should be running around <laughs> with a gun. Not he would not fall within the category of responsible gun owner, right? Um, and he had been um, convicted under this law, under the federal firearms prohibitor for having a gun um, while subject to a protective order. 
and he appealed to the Fifth Circuit, and the Fifth Circuit denied his appeal because this was pre-Bruin. After the Supreme Court released their ruling in Bruin, he appealed again and said, hey, you know, now there's a different, now, now there's a different test. Um, and I should, I should not be prohibited because there isn't a, uh, you know, a historical um, record of, of prohibitions in my case. I'm wondering if the fact that he is such a bad actor might play into, quote, our better interests in this case, you know, that he's such a horrible representative of uh, why somebody like him should have a gun, that perhaps these judges will come out of their originalist, creationist uh, <laughs> point of view when it comes to the Second Amendment. You know, I, I mean, if I had to choose somebody to bring this case, you know, I mean, he would be the guy. Right. Yeah. Like he is so clearly not a responsible gun owner. Really, you know, there's nothing special about him or his case. He just is the first guy who came up, um, who challenged this law and the Fifth Circuit took his case. And reading the Fifth Circuit's ruling, I think they really just have a fundamental misunderstanding both of Bruin. And Bruin very clearly says you know, that you don't have to have a historical twin, you just need to have a historical analog. And I think in the Fifth Circuit in Brahimi was looking for a twin and not um, an analog. And they also display a, 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 a very clear fundamental lack of understanding of protective orders and the protective order process and the importance of protective orders and the role that protective orders play in the lives of victims and survivors. You know, a, a lot of what they're saying is, well, just convict them. If you just if, if you just charge them in a criminal case, then there won't be a problem. Um, but that's not how real people live. Right. And and, and it's just not it's, it's not reflective of the real, lived realities of so many survivors who, who are never going to go through the, the criminal system um, for, for many, many very valid reasons. So the Fifth Circuit, which covers um, Texas, Mississippi, and Louisiana, they ruled that that this particular federal law is unconstitutional. To be completely clear, their ruling does not affect the rest of the country. It only affects Texas, Mississippi, and Louisiana, and it does not affect their state laws. So state law also prohibits Rahimi from having a gun. And he is still prohibited under state law in Texas for having it, right? I think there's a lot of confusion about that. So, you know, this circuit, they uh, issued this ruling and then they reissued it with more inaccurate commentary about domestic violence protective orders. And the federal government appealed to the Supreme Court. Um, and the Supreme Court has, has taken up this case. There are uh, a number of other... Um, circuits that have come to different conclusions about this. So there is kind of a circuit split, although those, those were issued before Bruin, but um, still use this one test framework that was laid out in Bruin and, and, and found that the prohibitor is constitutional. Um, so, you know, I think we are hopeful um, that the Supreme Court will, will side with us based on um, some of the concurrences, um, as well as the dissents, 
uh, in, in, in Bruin and you know, just the importance of this law for the safety of victims and survivors and communities across the country cannot be overstated. What strategic action is your organization taking to defend protection orders and maintain the safety of women? Yeah, absolutely. So we are um, working with a number of other stakeholder groups in the domestic violence community um, and the public health community and the gun violence prevention community um, in law enforcement community, um, stakeholders across the board to coordinate amicus briefs. Um, so friends, friends of the court briefs um, where interested parties um, write to the Supreme Court and tell them, you know, we have expertise that is touching on this issue that you're considering. Based on our expertise, here's what you should know um, as you're, as you're um, making your ruling, as you're deciding on this case. You know, so that, that is something to just kind of keep your eyes out for. There, th those are still being, still being developed. We're also continuing to do our work. At BWJP, we have a couple of different firearms related projects or projects that are that are related to Rahimi. Um, so we have the National Research Center on Protective Orders and Full Faith and Credit. Obviously, you know, what they do is, is provide training and technical assistance around protective orders. We have the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence and Firearms, and then also the Firearms Technical Assistance Project. And so together, we are helping jurisdictions to implement policies and protocols to take firearms away from people who have been found by a court to pose a danger or to have committed domestic violence. So we are full speed ahead with the work and you know we will keep keep going and until you know this case is resolved and 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 we we expect this case to be resolved um, in our favor. What would you like to say to our listeners? Anything else? Um yeah, you know we would love you um, if you were to follow us on all the social media platforms. You can go to our website, sign up for our newsletter, where you can get information about new resources and publications and, and available training. Our website is a cornucopia of, of trainings and, and, and resources. Um, and we also have an excellent podcast. Um, since I know you all are podcast listeners, since you are listening to this excellent podcast um, calling Taking Back Control. So definitely, if you want to learn more about domestic violence, uh, recommend you check can you give us your website handle? Or? It is bwjp.org. Okay, thank you. Great. Well, Rachel Graber, Libby Edwards, and I'm Sarah Germaine Lilly. Thank you so much for being with us today. There are so many issues that are confronting women today, but in terms of physically being safe and being able to negotiate our lives, this uh, is critical. So once again, the Supreme Court is getting very personal in, um, in these uh, rulings. And I really appreciate you being here to tell us about this and help us understand it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for, for devoting an episode to this issue. It is of utmost importance to um, the safety of survivors, the safety of their families, and the safety of communities across the country. Well, thank you for taking time to share all this information with us. You can always find ways to support systemic change for victims of domestic violence at bwjp.org. 
and listen to their broadcast, Taking Back Control, on the lethal link between firearms and domestic abuse homicides. To find out more about working with us, please go to gazeagainstguns.net or follow us at Gaze Against Guns New York on Facebook and Instagram or Gag No Guns on Twitter. Everybody is welcome at any and all gag events. It's time to end our show. Thanks for listening, and we will be back with a new episode every week. Don't forget, you can listen to our previous shows anytime on any major podcast platform. Our shows are featured on Brick Free Speech Radio. Please subscribe to our podcast so you'll be notified when new shows drop. At this time, we're here for you. And we leave you with our fabulous singing quartet, Sing Out Louise. Oh yeah, we'll tell you something. We got you on the run. If you are an abuser, we want to take your gun. We want to take your gun. We want to take your gun. Oh, please say to me, you've had your background check. Cause when you fail your test, well, what do you We wanna take your gun!